This is Betsy Jensen, and you are listening to Unstoppable Body and Mind, Episode 7, Self-Care is Not Selfish, and Other Common Myths. In this podcast, we learn to upgrade our brain and understand the power of our thoughts to heal and to create the results we want in our life. Become the person in control of your healing and make peace with your life. Become unstoppable, body and mind. Hello, welcome to episode seven. Today we are talking about self-care. It is such an important topic. I really think it is the most important thing. Learning about and practicing self-care is the most important thing you can do for yourself or for those around you in your life. So I want to think about ourself as all of the parts of us. So taking care of ourself would include the physical and the mental and the emotional and the spiritual. But as most of us would agree, uh, we have kind of been trained to focus mainly on the physical part. We might go to the gym or eat a certain way to get our bodies to look how we want. And we do react to our bodies because our bodies know how to grab our attention. Our bodies demand our attention through causing us pain. Pain, if we think about it, is a request from the body to change. It's like an action signal from our body. It's a warning sign that it's time for us to do something, time to take care of ourselves. So just like our phone might have that signal that says there's low power and it needs to be plugged in, our bodies can signal us when we need to recharge. So as you'll learn today and we'll go through, self-care is not just about pampering our physical body or taking care of ourselves physically. That can be part of it and it is an important part of it, but today I want to talk about addressing and caring for our whole selves. And I want us to think today about self-care as not only one of the most important things we can do for ourselves, but one of the most important things we can do for those around us. I believe that practicing self-care is more important than anything else we could do for our children, for example. It would be more important to my children than what school they go to, whether I'm a working mom or whether I'm a stay-at-home mom. Having good self-care would be more important to my family than how much money we make or where we live or even what vacations we go on. When I can model good self-care, then I can be a more genuine version of myself and I'll no longer try to people please or make decisions trying to get someone to like me or feel a certain way. And I will model that for those around me. So what is self-care? Already it may feel like we're talking about self-care in a way different than you're used to thinking about it. If you were like me, you kind of thought that self-care meant pedicures and bubble baths and massages and maybe vacations, all of these things for the physical body. And it can be that. But I would like to define self-care as deliberately taking care of your well-being through restorative activities. So cognitively, I think we know that taking care of our well-being is good. 
if we're super stressed, we're not as productive. We can probably see that in other people. Maybe a harder time seeing that in ourselves. But most of us can admit that when we're stressed, we're not present with those around us or what we're doing. We're a little more distracted. And usually we're trying to escape in some way and not getting as much done as we think. So, and it's exhausting, right? So why is it so hard to take care of ourselves deliberately and engage in these restorative practices? Why is self-care not practiced more? I think it is because of some of the myths that we have about self-care in our society. And the first and the biggest one is that self-care is selfish, right? We always hear this. At least I did. (laughs) And I still do sometimes, but I have reframed it. I like to look at it in a different way because I really genuinely don't think there's a negative side of self-care and selfish implies something negative. It's kind of implying that if we take time for self-care, that somehow we're harming those around us because we're not constantly giving to them. So does taking time to take care of ourselves really mean that we are only benefiting ourselves or that we're taking from others? Everyone knows the analogy of the oxygen masks when you are on an airplane. If the oxygen masks drop down, you are supposed to put on your own oxygen mask first before trying to assist someone else with theirs. So we are trained to know this and we can apply it in that setting, but it's harder to apply in everyday life. We do not have an obvious sign of a mask dropping often to cue us that we need to check in with ourselves. Plus, sometimes our brains will tell us that it is a selfish thing to do to practice self-care. I like this analogy of a vase that is filled with water. This I heard this with Jess Lively on her podcast. So if I have just a little bit of water in my vase, then for me to try to share that water with others, I have to try to tip to the sides in order for that water to spill out. And the lower my water is, the more I have to tip to the side to try to get water out. And the more dangerous it is to the vase, it could spill or it could drop and shatter. But if the vase is filled up so much with water that it's overflowing, then the vase doesn't even have to tip at all to share the water. So if we're thinking about being selfish or not, I think that would be if you're giving water to others where you're having to tip to the side, you're giving at your own expense. If you're feeling depleted by sharing that water with others, that gives you a clue to whose expense this is at. So are we asking someone to tip their vase to give us water? That would be selfish. But if we're filling our own vase so much that it's just naturally full and spilling over and sharing with those around us, then that is self-care. If I take time to go to a one-hour yoga class that teaches me about mindfulness and helps give me thoughts to develop self-confidence in my ability to do hard things, 
I may have less of a need to feel like I have to escape my stressful life by being on the phone or overeating or overspending. I might be less reactive to my children fighting or less reactive to the fact that my house isn't perfect. If doing that hour of yoga is something that restores me and lifts me up, then those around me will benefit from it too. You can't give to others if you don't have anything else to give. One clue to know that you're giving at your own expense might be the feelings that you're having coming from your thoughts about it. So if you are feeling resentful, exhausted, depleted, frustrated, or critical to those that you're giving to, that is a sign that you're giving at your own expense. A sign to stop and evaluate. And maybe you can reframe it and you'll want to think about it differently and still perform that action. Or maybe it is one that you could delegate. It's just time to pause when you find things like that. So if you have been giving to others at your expense and you stop doing it, to them it may seem like you're taking from them. So again, with that analogy, if people are used to getting that water from you tipping your vase over for them, and then you stop tipping your vase over for them, they might feel like you're taking from them or that something has gone wrong or that you should keep doing it and that you shouldn't stop. But it's unsustainable for you to continue to tip your vase and exhaust that water supply that you have. If it worked, I would say to keep doing it, but ultimately it doesn't. The cycle is depleting and you're not getting restored. So remember, being selfish would mean you're asking someone to do something at their expense for you to have your needs met. And if you're not asking them to tip their vase for you, you're not being selfish and you're not taking from them. I like thinking of the model when I think about how my actions influence other people. In fact, a lot of times I think we think that our actions have a lot more influence over other people, like as if we can control them. But really, if you think about the model, all of the actions that I take are just in the circumstance or the sea line for someone else. So I have no control over what someone else thinks about what I do or how they feel about what they think about what I do. The only part of their model that I'm a part of is their circumstance line. They decide what they think from there. So if I tell my son he needs to start folding his laundry, that's a circumstance. He and I both decide what we make that mean. I could choose to make that mean that I'm a bad mom and that's mean and I should do that for him. Or I could choose to think that I'm empowering him and I'm helping him learn skills for independent living. And I'm modeling self-care by delegating. There are different ways of looking at it. So practicing self-care is not in an attempt to try to control people or get your needs met. Self-care is taking responsibility for filling your own needs. Self-care is taking responsibility for filling your own needs. I said it twice, I know, because it's so important. It's the most mature and selfless way to live. And it's the most loving 
By practicing self-care, you can be an example to those around you. One form of self-care is being compassionate with yourself. If you love yourself and you accept your own body and you become comfortable in your skin no matter what age or shape or size you are, then you are restoring yourself and you're being a good example to others. If you practice self-care, you can model self-compassion for those times that you make mistakes. You can teach by example that you don't have to be perfect to love yourself and to love others. So how would that look? I had an example come up this week that I will tell you about. My daughter wore some of my favorite black yoga pants that had pockets. They were the perfect material. I, they don't make them anymore. <laughs> and she fell on the gym floor and she got a hole in them. When she told me about it, I did not react well, and I'm not proud of how I acted. I had very little regard for her and how she felt, but I was really upset that my pants were ruined and that I probably could not replace them. I told her that she needed to take better care of my things. In fact, I didn't think she was responsible enough to ever borrow my things again, and I was not at all sympathetic to the fact that she fell and that she got hurt. And I didn't even ask if she was okay or why she fell. And I actually remember thinking to myself, like, she kind of falls a lot on purpose. You know, it was, I knew I was acting this way, but I wasn't ready to be mature enough in that moment to move past it. Um, it took some time actually for me. Um, we got home, she went to her room and I took some time for some self-care because I was realizing this was not how I wanted to show up, but I really tried not to get deeper into it by criticizing myself or for shaming myself for how I reacted. I tried to be compassionate with myself I tried to remind myself that I'm an imperfect human and that there are times that I don't react how I want to. And I laid down and I actually took a little nap because I think I was a little tired and grumpy. And when I was a little calmer after I woke up, I went and talked to my daughter and apologized. And I talked to her about how I acted and that that's not how I wanted to act with her and that I was sorry. And so even though I didn't model the behavior that I wanted to in the time, um, when I initially found out about the ripped pants, I still used this time for self-care and then set an example to her of someone who can mess up but still love myself and apologize. So when we remember that half of life is negative and no matter whatever choices we make, half of the time there are going to be negative things in our lives and we can just choose how we react to them. We can also remember that half of the time we might not show up as we want to. We might only be a good parent half of the time, which is kind of a freeing thought, but also kind of a thought we resist, like only half the time setting the bar pretty low there, right? But in reality, there 
there are times that we don't show up how we want to, but that can still be a learning experience. It doesn't have to be negative in a way that impacts our life negatively forever, but it's one of those things that happens and we deal with and we learn from. If you can learn not to catastrophize or blame others or live in victimization, then you can be a positive example of how to deal with that 50% of life that's negative or doesn't go as well as you want it to. Practicing self-care teaches you to love yourself, which is the only way to truly, unconditionally love others. It is not selfish. The last reason that self-care is not selfish is because there could be self-care that you practice that does involve or centers around giving to others. You might find that giving to others in certain ways is actually very restorative to you. In some cases, giving can be that form of taking care of yourself. You may get a lot of joy from creating something for someone. I love doing crafts and have spent time making jewelry for people as gifts before. And I would consider that self-care. Even though I was doing it for someone else, it was enjoyable to me. It increased my energy levels. It gave me a sense of well-being. It was the kind of activity that filled me up and was not depleting. It was restorative to me. So that was a form of self-care. I just recently read about a study from the University of California where they found that people who performed a random act of kindness every day for six weeks reported a 42% increase in happiness. So you might consider self-care as ways that you can help other people in your life. Practicing self-care is not selfish. Myth number two is that self-care has to cost money. We have a $10 billion self-care industry that would tell you otherwise. And when most people think of self-care, they think of pedicures or massages or exotic vacations. Self-care involves more than just pampering ourselves or treating ourselves to expensive luxuries that we normally wouldn't. One example of self-care that has proven health benefits and does not have to cost money is meditation. Remember, our minds are active, thinking thoughts about 60 to 70,000 thoughts a day, and usually about 80% of them are negative. This is the normal state of our brain. It's constantly on the lookout for things that could go wrong or worrying about things so that we can survive as a species. This means that our brain is working right. It's looking out for things that could threaten our survival. So meditation teaches us to relax our minds or to quiet our minds or just to be the observer of our thoughts and not be so reactive because usually what happens is our thoughts are negative, it triggers the stress response, and then you get more anxiety, higher blood pressure, and it's even a cause of disease. So meditation has been shown to decrease stress, help control anxiety, lower your blood pressure, increase your immune system, improve your sleep, improve your ability to concentrate, and to reduce age-related memory loss. I think meditation can sound intimidating sometimes. A lot of people think that they cannot meditate, and it is hard to quiet the mind. 
Um, I started meditating with just three minutes a day. I was using the Muse meditating headband, which gave me feedback, which I think was really cool. But you don't have to have special equipment to meditate. Um, you can even find guided meditations on YouTube so that you can listen to something and hear a voice rather than just pure quiet. You don't have to sit in a certain position. You can be comfortable if you have pain with sitting in a certain way. And you don't have to look a certain way doing it. Basically, you can just focus on your breathing. If nothing else, you can just breathe in and out for three minutes. So meditating definitely does not have to cost money. Going outside into nature is a form of self-care that can be free. Um, the Environmental Psychology Magazine said that time in nature improves our mood, reduces stress, and improves our cognitive function. But the average person spends 93% of their life indoors. There's a trend right now called earthing, where you touch the ground with your bare hands or feet. And they've even shown in research that earthing can reduce inflammation, reduce stress, improve your sleep, and in increase circulation. For many people, going outside can be a spiritual connection as well. Other forms of self-care that are free and would focus more on the spiritual aspect would be prayer or journaling or repeating mantras that have value. You could take a shower or bath and get dressed in clothes. That could be a form of self-care that doesn't have to cost anything. You could play with your kids or play with your pets. That could be restorative for you. If it's not, you shouldn't consider it self-care. But for many people, especially playing with pets, um, that's shown to have improvements to your health as well. Myth number three is that you don't have time for self-care. So sometimes we're on this hamster wheel where we just think we've got to go faster, we've got to go harder, but we're not getting anywhere. And we talked about that stress response before, but thinking that you're busy and acting busy is part of that stress response too which does lead to a lot of disease and health issues. So self-care is taking that restorative time, just like we have to sometimes turn our phones off, kind of reset them. We do need to recharge and restore ourselves. Our body demands it. Basically, at some point, we need to rest and sleep. But making rest or sleep a priority could be a form of self-care. If you don't have a good bedtime routine or you don't have ideas of how to improve your sleep, there are many resources online about this. It could involve things like not using electronics past a certain time or to darken a room completely or to use earplugs. But there are things you can do for encouraging a better night's sleep and that could be a form of self-care. You can actually make time for yourself by practicing self-care with others. So being true to yourself or being authentic or being honest would involve saying no or yes to people who are asking for your time. So it will help you prioritize your activities because if someone asks you to do an activity that you know is not something that truly is restorative for you, 
that if you do it, you'll be thinking thoughts that make you feel resentful, then you could politely thank them for thinking of you. And you can tell them that you wouldn't be interested in doing that. Maybe it's, I wouldn't be interested in baking 12 dozen cookies for your bake sale, but I'd be happy to contribute in another way. And maybe you could give of some of your talents in a way that is restoring for you, where you're using your expertise and you feel fulfilled and you're helping others in a way you're passionate about. Self-care could also involve organizing and planning. So this could be organizing things around your house. If you have a very cluttered bathroom drawer and it makes your mornings a little more chaotic because you can never find the things that you need in time, taking some self-care time to organize your bathroom drawer could create space and time for you in the future so that you're not rushing and so that you're feeling more mentally stable and less frazzled. So taking time to declutter, to be more of a minimalist, to um, simplify our life, even studying things like feng shui, um, where you learn about the energy and spaces. I really believe in that. I've had some cool experiences practicing and dabbling in feng shui, and I do really feel a lot more calm in my room when there's not a lot of clutter around. Planning could also be a form of organizing your life. If you're planning your meals for the week, you might be able to just go to the grocery store one time and get all of the things that you need or maybe plan to have leftovers. Um, and then you wouldn't be stressing out about dinner or resorting to fast food as a last minute option. I know for me, every time I do a slow cooker, it's like, why don't I do these more often? Usually it takes very little time in the morning to get it prepared. If I have all the ingredients, I throw it in, it cooks all day. And then when we come home, we have a hot meal ready and actually save so much more time than coming home and having to scramble for dinner and maybe having to run to the store or running out to buy food. So anything that you can do to make life easier for your future self is self-care. Myth number four is that self-care has to look a certain way. I definitely think what's restorative for one person and what gives them energy might not feel restorative to someone else. Someone might get energized by a vigorous yoga class, while other people might prefer sitting to read a book or going for a walk with their dog. So the first thing is to really understand what your needs are or what kinds of things recharge you. You might think if you're an introvert or an extrovert, some people might want to be alone and recharge a little bit more from that alone time. And some people might recharge more from social events or from even from talking on the phone to someone. In The Mindful Path to Self-Compassion, he talks about sex as being a form of self-care, which I'd never really thought about, but if sex is restorative and increases your joy and energy in life, then it's definitely self-care. Of course, if any of these pleasurable things that increase your energy become a detriment to your life, then you'll know because there are some negative consequences or negative effects. 
So it's at the cost of something else, which would not be self-care. Another form of self-care is movement. And again, it doesn't have to look like a certain way. A lot of times people want a certain exercise program or if you have struggled with chronic pain, maybe you haven't been able to exercise in the ways that you're used to or the ways that you like to. But think about it as movement and that there could be alternatives to the movements that you can already do that would be beneficial. So you could look into things like aquatic therapy or Tai Chi. Dr. Perry Nicholson from Stop Chasing Pain said the key is to move more of yourself more often in more ways and in more environments. I love this. So if because of your condition and chronic pain that you've had, you're only able to lay in bed and move your arm up and down, then you would try to do it more often. Or maybe you'd try to sit up in bed and do it. Or maybe you'd try to sit up in a chair and do it. Or maybe you would try to do it side to side and not just forward and back. So again, just thinking of moving more of yourself more often in more ways and in more environments, starting from where you are. And knowing that any kind of movement that you do helps increase endorphins, the natural feel-good chemicals in our brain that are like morphine. And it also helps us sleep. Uh, movement can help with decreasing pain. There's a lot of pain that results from immobility. So think of movement as self-care. Also, eating healthy foods, drinking more water. Most of us could drink more water. And one that I've been trying lately is instead of when I'm feeling tired, instead of drinking caffeine, <laughs> instead of going for that, to actually just rest. And sometimes it's just like a five or ten minute rest, closing my eyes, and that's so much more refreshing than if I were to try to have an artificial stimulant to um, increase my energy and then ultimately make me feel more tired. Another form of self-care is self-reflection and especially questioning our thoughts and becoming more mentally aware. So if you think about in the 40s and 50s, people never really went to the gym. It wasn't a big deal um, to exercise unless maybe you were a boxer, you'd go to a gym or a gymnast or something, you'd go to a gym. But um, the average person wasn't, didn't have a gym membership. But now it's much more common in our society. Even those who don't go might agree that, you know, we, it is a good thing for our health. And I think that our mental health is progressing in that same way. In the past, having some kind of mental help has been some kind of stigma or just for specialized people. But we're seeing more and more the benefits of having someone to talk to about our problems or perceived ideas. Someday everyone will have a life coach that it won't be so um, out of the ordinary to have a therapist or some kind of self-coaching practice. And hopefully someday it'll even be taught in school. Myth number five, the last myth of self-care, is that self-care means not working. I think that self-care actually is the opposite. 
And it's not the kind of work that you're doing just to be busy or because, again, someone else wants you to or you feel an obligation. But it's taking action on goals. It's accomplishing some tasks. Getting things done, I think, is a form of self-care. They should be things that bring you joy. You could start with a joy journal where you're kind of keeping track during the day of things that bring you joy. Maybe it's talking to someone, or maybe it's quiet time, or maybe it's creating something. But when we do things that we find avoiding our lives, like if we were watching TV instead of taking care of something that we really wanted to do and needed to do, we wouldn't necessarily feel restored from that activity. Accepting help can be a form of self-care when you realize that accepting help can be a sign of strength and not a sign of weakness and that you're allowing other people to give when you accept help and that that can be something that's very restorative for you. That can be a way that you're able to achieve more of your goals. The magic is in the work that you're avoiding. With any of these self-care activities, I would encourage you to try to pick one and then apply what I've talked about before with the tiny habits. So this is from a book, Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg. And he has you pick an area that you want to make your habit, have it be something that's relevant and important to you, have a strong why, and make it really, really tiny, like just flossing one tooth, or just opening the book, or just reading one paragraph. So you have a trigger, a time that you do it. So you brush your teeth, and then you just floss one tooth, and then you celebrate that you've done it. And after a few days, do as many teeth as you want, but for the first few days, you just do the tiny habit and you practice celebrating. And in the future, if you wanna do all of your teeth, that's great, you celebrate, but if you go back to just flossing one tooth for one night, you celebrate that as well. And I found that to be a really effective and fun way to start some behavior change in a positive way that helps build a lot of self-esteem So if you want to start with something like drinking more water, have maybe a water bottle that's by your bed so that in the morning you drink 12 ounces of water and you do that every day. And when that is a firm habit that you can find joy and success in, you can add more habits that increase your health. And what you find is that you'll naturally want to add more things once you're successful at starting to build these habits. And then the sky's the limit with what you want to accomplish. Now, if you're struggling with any kind of chronic pain or maybe a body or a skin condition, allergies or asthma, GI disorders or autoimmune diseases, self-care is the most important job for you right now. You need to first discover what self-care is for you, what's restorative for you, what lights you up, what kinds of negative things you can let go of. You could ask your body what your body is trying to teach you and do some journaling. But basically, something at this point has got to change. I heard the quote, you cannot get well in the same environment in which you got ill. 
So I believe the way we change that environment so that we can promote more healing is by engaging in self-care. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a little bit about your brain today that helps you in your life like it helped me. Please be sure and subscribe and leave a review. And of course, be sure and share this podcast with someone you know that wants an unstoppable body and mind.